0: My mouth may proclaim your praise in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Um, I don't get newspapers these days, but I seem to get articles, mostly uh, through Facebook, either the Telegraph or the Guardian or the Wall Street Journal. If you read those newspapers on a regular basis, you might have come across this particular article last week in the Wall Street Journal. It's written by somebody called Eric Metaxas, and uh, you might go and Google him. He's a great author. He's written several uh, very good books, but he's writing this article in the Wall Street Journal, and he starts it this way. In 1966, Time magazine ran a cover story asking, is God dead? Many have accepted the cultural narrative that he's obsolete that as science progresses, there's less need for a God to explain the universe. Yet it turns out that the rumors of God's death were premature. More amazing is that the relatively recent case for his existence comes from a surprising place. It comes from science itself. Uh, You might remember the name Carl Sagan, so he was writing right around this period in the 1960s when um, there was first the, the, the story out there that science had discovered that the universe started with a big bang and they were starting to formulate how many planets there were in the universe. And they came up with a number of roughly um, an octillion. That's one followed by 27 zeros at the end of it. So with that number of planets in the universe, Carl Sagan premised that um, to find actually sentient life, on another planet, only two things were necessary: the right kind of star, and a planet that right, writes the right distance from that star. So of course, with that mass, it looks like there should be any number of planets out there that actually could sustain life, a sentient life. And so uh, you might be familiar with the name SETI, which was the organization that was put together the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It was an expensive collection of private and publicly funded projects launched in the 1960s, and they thought surely they would find something soon. So they listened with a vast radio telescope network for signals that resembled coded intelligence that were not merely random. But as the years passed, silence from the rest of the universe was deafening, says um, Eric Metaxas. In 1993, Congress defunded SETI, but the search continues with private funds. But he notes, as of 2014, researchers have discovered precisely Bubkiss. Zero followed by nothing. And so he says, what happened? What happened was is that our knowledge, as science progressed, as we learned more and more and more about the universe... What happened was that those two criteria developed into 10, then they developed into 20, and then they developed into 50. Now, each time the criteria is raised, the number of possibilities of planets actually with life decreased. And so uh, even SETI proponents by 2006 acknowledged this. Peter Schenkel wrote in Skeptical Inquirer, in light of new findings and insights, it seems appropriate to put excessive euphoria to rest. We should quietly admit that the early estimates may no longer be tenable. And as factors continue to be discovered, the number of possible planets hit zero and kept going what does that mean it hit zero and kept going in other words the odds turned against any planet in the universe supporting life including this one probability said that even we shouldn't be here according to science Today, there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life. Every single one must be perfectly met or the whole thing falls apart. Without a massive planet like Jupiter nearby, whose gravity will draw away asteroids, a thousand times as many would hit Earth's surface. Did you know that why we're kept safe from the number of asteroid hits that possibly could occur? is because Jupiter's gravity pulls them out of ours. I never knew that. Yet here we are. So it says, the odds against life in the universe are simply astonishing. Yet here we are, not only existing, but talking about existing. What can account for it? Can every one of those many parameters have been perfect by accident? At what point is it fair to admit that science suggests that we cannot be the result of random forces? Doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions require far less faith than believing that a life-sustaining Earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds of coming into being? He says there's more. The fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. For example, astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. Alter any one value and the universe could not exist. For instance, if the ratio between nuclear strong force and electromagnetic force had been off by the tiniest fraction Of the tiniest fraction by even a part of one followed by 17 zeros, infinitesimally small, even off by a fraction of a fraction, no stars would ever have formed at all. No stars would ever have formed at all. Multiply that single parameter by all the other necessary conditions and the odds against the universe existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. It would be like tossing a coin and having it come up heads 10 quintillion times times in a row. Really, he says. (laughs) Sir Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who coined the term the Big Bang, said that his atheism was greatly shaken at these developments. He later wrote that a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics and with the chemistry and biology as well. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to be so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. And theoretical physicist Paul Davis has said that the appearance of design is overwhelming. And Oxford professor Dr. John Lennox said, the more we get to know, the more science gets to know about our universe, the more the hypothesis that there is a creator gains in credibility as the best explanation of why we're here. The more science gets to know, the more it reveals that there must have been a creator And he concludes, the greatest miracle of all time, without any close seconds, is the universe itself, that it exists at all. It's the miracle of all miracles, one that ineluctably points with the combined brightness of every star to something or someone beyond itself. And Genesis already had the answer to the question in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth God said let there be light and there was light in the beginning God said let there be light Some of you have heard me talk about a bishop in the Episcopal Church called Nicholas Nicholas Nicely. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He wrote a book called Lent is Not Rocket Science, and he's also a quantum physicist. And he also uh, wrote about this period of time in the 1960s, that they started to confront, be confronted with an extraordinary surprise. They had developed the uh, machinery, the things that they could finally explore out to the edges of the universe. And so as they pointed these microwave thermometers out to the edge of the universe, they found an extraordinary fact. The edges of the universe were not cold. But the more surprising fact was that the temperature on one side of the universe was absolutely identical to the temperature on the other side of the universe. Well, if any of you have tried to start boiling water at exactly the same time, same volume of water, exact same pan, uh, two rings, exactly the same, it doesn't happen. It's always different. One boils differently. Either it's the temperature of the water coming out or are slight variations. You just can't get that unless. And this is what the answer turned out to be, he said. The answer turned out to be that the universe, which began in the fiery explosion, was very, very, very small Initially even though the part of the universe on one side of the sky is too far away to have talked to the other side of the sky, the two sides of the sky were once in the same place. The two sides of the sky were once in the same place. So while they're rushing apart from each other, in the universe's expansion, they remember the information they knew at the beginning of creation. Here's the amazing thing. That turns out to be true for everything in the universe because the universe was once one. Every particle of matter that is contained in your body and mine were once one. Grasp that amazing fact. Every ghostly subatomic particle that is hurtling through the outer darkness of the universe was once part of all of us. In the moment of creation, we were once one. And there are certain properties that we all share because of that moment of unity. When you look into the deep n- darkness of the nighttime sky, you're seeing matter and energy that is fundamentally connected with you. It puts Francis' words in a completely different light when he talked about brother sun and sister moon. And God said, from this beginning, let there be light. And there was light, and he spoke creation into being. Not only that, but do you know that the necessary atoms of our bodies to sustain life, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, with small amounts of other elements, come from the stars? You remember in the 60s, the song, We Are Stardust? We Are Stardust. Again, Genesis says, so these billions of stars, as they formed out of the hydrogen, out of let there be light, and God created the stars in the heaven, and the stars in the heaven, as they died, the dust of the stars fell to earth, And God gathered the dust of the earth and created humankind and breathed his life into humankind and made them in his image with his spirit. And throughout the Genesis narrative, And he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was very good. And you hear throughout this Genesis narrative, God just rejoicing and delighting in what he's creating You know, have you seen those pictures in in National Geographic? These tiny things that are in the bottom of the ocean that we're only just now realizing exists, that have existed through the millennia, and God delighted. We weren't able to see it, but he delighted in creating it. He delighted in the giraffe, he delighted in the hippopotamus. And he delighted in us and breathed himself into us. First creation. And on the seventh day, he rested. He created out of pure love just because he loved to create. And then he loved his creation. And initially, his realm... We're at heaven's realm, where God is, where God lives. That's not a location. It's not out there somewhere past the universe because we read in Scripture that he's very close to us. He's close as we breathe. So God's dimension, heaven and earth dimension, were together until sin came into the world and there's a rupture. And so that we don't eat in this sinful way, eternal death. There's a veil between heaven's realm and earth's realm. You know, every once in a while, I know some of you have recognized this, there get to be thin places between heaven's realm and earth's realm. Especially when we're glorifying God and worshipping him. Especially in places where prayers have been said over the centuries. Holy Isle, Lindisfarne in England is one of those. Iona in Scotland is one of those as well. And we have heard the angels sing here. We have heard the angels sing here. There are still places where heaven's dimension and earth's dimension and the veil separating the two become gossamer thin but God wanted the fullness of that relationship restored and it needed new creation it needed heaven's dimension and earth's dimension joined together and that happened in Jesus who is God and who is man the man of heaven and the man of God come together in one sinless person joined together new creation and it's not by accident that that John in the prologue to his gospel makes the correlation between the Genesis narrative of creation. In the beginning, writes John, was the Word who spoke into being creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not Anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it john is speaking of the son of god co-eternal with god god the father god the son god the holy spirit god's word spoke creation into being let there be light and there was light and all things came into being and john continues And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, became incarnate, became Emmanuel, God with us. Messiah, Christ, Lord, God with us. And at his baptism, this new creation, this new Adam, sinless, new creation at his baptism we hear in today's gospel the heavens opened and the spirit descended on him like a dove heaven's realm and earth's realm the veil opened up and the spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son With you I am well pleased. But new creation was not just for Jesus. It was to be shared. It was to be shared for all creation. And how is new creation, heaven's dimension joined to earth's dimension in Jesus, how could that be shared? How could this new creation life be? expand through all creation Jesus says how again in John's Gospel truly truly I say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit we've seen that we've even seen that with our vegetable gardens out here your seeds propagate And so Jesus says, I have to die for you to have new creation life. So through his death, resurrection, new creation, a new beginning. It's why the early church, and even today, Sunday of the resurrection, is talked about as the eighth day. It's the eighth day of creation, On the seventh day, God rested. On the eighth day of of creation, Jesus, freed from the bonds of death, came out of the tomb. The tomb is empty, and now new creation is available for all who have been burdened by the sin, suffering, and death of old creation. Paul puts it this way in his second letter to the church in Corinth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So, how does that happen? How do we get to be in Christ? How do we live in Christ? Through baptism. In our baptism we are in Christed. Not John's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance. Remember as Paul goes to the Ephesians, he says um, uh, in, into what baptism? They say into John's baptism. But John's baptism was a precursor for the fullness of baptism through which we receive the Holy Spirit who dwells in us for new creation life. And so is repentance necessary? Absolutely Shortly we will actually reaffirm our baptismal covenant. Repentance is is necessary for us. We repent of the old way as we go into baptism to receive the anointing, the inward anointing of God's Holy Spirit. And we vow to turn away from darkness and to turn to light. Paul in Romans says, do you not know? that all of us who've been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live and walk in newness of life. New creation. We are walking new creations We've been baptized with him. We've received the same new creation life. We still live in an old creation world. But as new creations, we spread new creation. When we spread the gospel, when we spread the good news of Christ, when we go out into the darkness with the light, new creation goes out into the old and it will not be overcome ever. Whatever your eyes see, whatever your ears hear on the television, whatever is going on out there, new creation has happened with Christ. It's not as it will be at the end of time, but it is here, and it is unconquerable. Unconquerable. New creation. And do you know but at your baptism, the same words were spoken over you as they were over Christ. And God said, my dear, dear child, I'm delighted in you. You hear those words? And it wasn't just at your baptism. It's every day. Will you hear the words? My dear, dear Child, I am delighted in you. New creation. A restored relationship with God the Father. All done by him. All done through his grace. He came. He came to give us new creation life. Heaven, earth, life. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, in each one of us. Holy Spirit, new creation, life, never to die. This physical body, but we don't die forever. We live forever. New creation that continues on. So today, just in a minute, we're going to reaffirm our baptismal covenant Remember that you are indeed new creation. The old is gone. You have a regenerated spirit and soul, vivified by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Hear God again say to you, My dear, dear child, I am delighted with you. And as you worship, And as we all worship together, ascribing glory due his name, as the psalmist said, ascribing glory, glory, glory to you, Lord God of our fathers, glory to you. Know that there are times when that veil becomes really thin and we hear the angel sing. Amen.